Welcome to On The Go, an on-road transportation podcast with Clean Cities. In this episode, we're talking about the current ethanol and biodiesel markets, including vehicle usage, prices, and availability. To kick us off, let's introduce our hosts. I'm Molly Putzig, and today my colleague Sarah Cardinale will be talking about biofuels with two guests, Christy Moriarty and Scott Irwin. They'll give you some background on both ethanol and biodiesel and talk about what's going on in the industry, including how E15 helped alleviate oil pricing this summer. Let's turn it over to Sarah to introduce you to Christy Moriarty from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and Scott Irwin from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign College of Agricultural, Consumer, and Environmental Studies. All right, well, good morning. Uh, today we have uh, Dr. Scott Irwin um, from the University of Illinois and uh, Christy Moriarty from the National Renewable Energy Lab here to talk to us today about ethanol and biodiesel. Um, I'd like to welcome both of these guests to the podcast today. Um, and if each of you could just take some time to introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your background or qualifications um, and your interest in this area, that'd be great. Well, I can jump in and get started. Uh, uh, I've been uh, fascinated by grain markets ever since I grew up on a, a grain and livestock farm uh, back in the 1960s and 70s. And so and when I went into academics, I've continued to do research, teaching, and extension uh, related to grain and commodity markets. And with the rise of biofuels and their importance in grain pricing, it was a natural extension uh, for my interests in research. And so I've done a lot of writing uh, and research in the last decade on biofuels markets. And hello, I'm Christy Moriarty. And uh, previous to here, I worked for a small company that was based out of Minnesota, building biofuels plants and had never really given much thought to how you move it to the end user markets. And when I moved on to a job at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, uh, one of my first roles there was working with UL in Illinois to just get standards in place to enable the market for higher levels of ethanol and biodiesel. And from that point on, lots of research in that area for all sorts of biofuels and how you get them into pipelines and gas stations and aircraft and all sorts of other end uses. Excellent. Thank you both. Well, let's get started. Um, we're going to learn a lot today about ethanol and biodiesel. Um, Christy, can you kick us off by just talking a little bit more about what the current market looks like for ethanol? Yes, there's more than 200 ethanol production facilities in the U.S. and 25 states, though they're largely concentrated in the Midwest. In the last few years, perhaps discounting part of the 2020 with COVID, uh, production has been around 15 billion gallons a year. And last year, our consumption was 14 billion gallons. We still are a net exporter of ethanol to various parts of the world where that fuel is used. Uh, most of it in the US is sold as E10, so that's a 10% blend with gasoline, because most of our refineries are making what's called a sub-octane blend, and they need that 10% ethanol to get to that 87 at the gas station pump that you see and hit when 
uh, you buy gas out there. And there's also E15, which is a blend that's approved for 2001 newer vehicles and more than 95% of light duty uh, vehicles that use gasoline meet that criteria. So that's a growing market and opportunity. And E85 is a blend of 51 to 83% ethanol. And that just depends on geography and season. And it's for use in a specific type of vehicle called a flexible fuel vehicle or an FFV for short. Um, and for a long time, USDA has put out reports just comparing prices of, of gasoline and um, ethanol and, and biodiesel and, and other such things. And over the last few months, uh, with the recent high increases in gasoline prices, ethanol in the Gulf Coast market has generally been trading for uh, less than a gallon, a dollar a gallon uh, lower. So that's presented some opportunity for ethanol as well. And another potential future market that's being researched is upgrading ethanol into sustainable aviation fuel, which can be used in the airplanes that we all fly in today. Excellent. You mentioned E15 when you were going through the list there. Can you talk a little bit more about what E15 is and, and like what the status um, is currently of its use in the US? Sure. So E15 is like it sounds. It's just uh, the blend that's above E10 and up to 15%. It does require a little bit of upgrades for use at uh, gas stations. And like I said, it can only be used in 2001 in newer vehicles, but at that point, those are you know, 20 plus years old. So that represents nearly all of the market um, in the US. And it's currently available about a little more than 2,600 stations in 30 states. And we expect that to grow because both the agricultural uh, industry, as well as USDA, have supplied grants to stations under numerous different programs to extend the availability of, of E15. And most of those participants were really large chains, like sheets that you might be familiar with. Um, and they tend to sell larger volumes of fuels. And the data collected under the USDA programs continues to show an increase in E15 sales year over year. And just recently in April, Iowa passed uh, legislation where they're gonna require the sale of E15 at nearly all of their gas stations beginning in 2026. Um, and with all the, the recent activity in the world with oil pricing and markets and, and the Russian oil embargo, DOE and the White House had looked at some different scenarios where biofuels could help alleviate that cost since they're uh, produced domestically. Um, and E15 came up quite a bit. And there is one barrier with E15 with the a fuel property that's called reed vapor pressure, which measures the volatility of the fuel. And while E10 has a one pound waiver in summer months, uh, summer months E15 does not. Um, and it's just a matter of language from, from some older laws that are out there. Uh, so what happened this summer to help alleviate prices is that EPA uh, issued an emergency waiver to allow E15 sales nationwide. And, throughout 2022. Uh, hopefully in the future, there can be a legislative change to allow E15 sales year round so consumers don't get confused. I was just gonna add to that about E15. It's really interesting. Um, you know, it's uh, implementation has certainly not been without controversy, but regardless of that, uh, you've really seen a steady 
uptick in the aggregate data on blend rate, uh, ethanol uh, blend rate in U.S. gasoline pool uh, from five years ago, sitting right at about 10 percent to now about 10.3, 10.35%. So all of the programs uh, that you know, were mentioned um, have really contributed to a nice uptrend in E15 use. Again, it's not huge, uh, but it is certainly a building base. Yeah, and Scott, that's a really good point, because what happened with some of the stations that got USDA funding, as everyone's aware, gas stations tend to be across the street from each other, and they're allowed to advertise their lowest price. Um, and in many instances, E15 is generally cheaper than, than regular gasoline. Um, so that led to some stations that didn't receive uh, government grants feeling like they also had to sell E15 uh, to remain competitive uh, in their market. So if I'm a driver and I'm pulling up at a gas station and I have the option to use, um, you know, kind of the regular E10 or the E15, um, you know, what are, what are the pros um, or cons of choosing the E15 over the E10? And will drivers notice any difference in performance or towing or anything like that if they select E15? I don't think that as far as I know, uh, Christy can certainly comment on this, probably has better uh, technical knowledge, but it's my understanding is that there's no real difference in performance other than there will be a slight drop in miles per gallon because ethanol has about two thirds of the energy value of uh, petroleum gasoline. So that adding 5% ethanol, uh, replacing 5% petroleum, you'll see a small drop in uh, miles per gallon. And so the driver would have to trade off, you know, the price drop and see if that price drop is enough to compensate them for the drop in uh, gas mileage, which is very small, maybe around 1% or so. Uh, so from what I've been seeing in the data, and there isn't any really comprehensive national data, it looks like the price drop for E15 that I'm seeing probably do compensate drivers for that drop in miles per gallon. Um, I don't know, Christy, maybe uh, you guys have better data than I do. Uh, what are you picking up on that? Yeah, I definitely agree with what you said. We The fuel economy drops maybe 1% to 2%, but fuel economy can also be impacted by if you have the AC going, how fast you push on the accelerator. So we think it's negligible. Um, in terms of pricing, hopefully there'll be some publications out uh, with that sort of information soon. And it really depends on the year and the market dynamics and economics, which we all know change over time. But currently it could be 10 or 20 cents a, a gallon uh, less compared with conventional E10 fuel. Great. Now let's talk um, a little bit about E85 as well. Um, Christy, can you start us off and just talk a little bit about you know, what the current status of E85 is, as well as um, maybe dig into a little bit what flexible fuel vehicles are and um, what their current status is as well in the marketplace? Flexible fuel vehicles were introduced quite a long time ago, and they're able to operate on pretty much any level of ethanol that's available, whether there's no ethanol in the fuel at all, up to 
uh, 83%, so up to the E85 fuel, as it's called in the marketplace. And they generally don't cost more than conventional vehicles, and they were attractive to uh, vehicle manufacturers because they could receive a credit on their corporate average fuel economy standards. So that's just of all the vehicles that they make, they need to meet uh, certain requirements and fuel economy standards. So it was attractive to them to, to produce and sell these vehicles. Um, more than 20 million are, are registered throughout the US today. Uh, however, there, there was a change um, that comes from federal policy that kicked in uh, not too long ago that was requiring the vehicle manufacturers to show that the vehicle was using E85 in order to get a credit and the technology wasn't equipped in that way. So there has been a pretty marked decline in the availability of FFVs. And uh, in the data from USDA grant programs, we are starting to see uh, decline in E85 sales just in maybe the past uh, two years. Uh, E85 is a lot of stations where E15 is sold because sometimes those stations can't get E15 directly from their fuel terminal or fuel distributor. So they blend E85 and E10 in the blender pump to offer E15. Yeah, I think that's actually a good point that a lot of people might not realize how that works actually like you mentioned the blender pump um so are, do gas stations blend all of these different different fuels on site or are they getting them delivered in this way blender pumps have been around a really long time they're often associated with ethanol but when you go to a station and there's regular mid-grade and premium in the tanks there's just regular and premium. The mid-grade is offered by blending the premium and regular. Um, and, and in the case with, with E15, I think it's pretty mixed and it really depends on the market. And if you're selling E85 already, if you get E15 directly from a fuel distributor or terminal, or if you blend it with E85 and E10 to offer it to the consumer, um, same is true for, for biodiesel blends and diesel fuels. One of the things, again, uh, kind of different than E15, E85, basically, as long as I've studied it, has really struggled to be priced competitively, consistently across the country in order to attract uh, the, the consistent interest of drivers who have the flex fuel vehicles. Um, once again, uh, the real issue is miles per gallon. Um, interestingly, it's called E85, but it usually uh, seasonally varies the ethanol content on an average about 25, 26% of E85 rather than 15% is the amount of ethanol that's, that's in it. Uh, excuse me, I, I got that backwards. Uh, it's about 75 or 76% ethanol, not 85%. And, you know, so that is going to be a fairly significant uh, hit in terms of miles per gallon. And so the price of E85 to attract drivers has to compensate for uh, that third less miles per gallons on, on about three quarters of the gasoline mix you're buying. Uh, so that takes a pretty hefty price discount. And 
basically retailers have struggled to price it uh, competitively enough to really expand its usage across the United States. That's disappointed a lot of ethanol advocates. Uh, and there's a lot of complicated reasons for that. Uh, but it's basically um, really struggled to gain a foothold in the retail market would be my summary of E85 to date. Thanks, Scott. You mentioned that there was a, like a seasonality aspect to that as well. Why, why is that? Is that because of um, just like the, the availability of the crops that are creating the ethanol or is there another aspect to the seasonality? Uh, no, it's there's year round availability of uh, crops to make ethanol due to storage. You can store corn through the year uh, so you can make the ethanol through the year. Uh, it's my understanding, and I have to go back and remember it exactly, and Christy can help me out, but I believe there's a reason why the uh, blend level of ethanol varies. I can't remember which is uh, due to uh, vapor pressure issues. It's either uh, higher or lower uh, in the summer, and I believe it gets lower amount of ethanol uh, because of um, vapor pressure issues. Uh, it's the same thing that affects the RVP waiver for E15. Um, so uh, you can bail me out, Christy, if I've got that wrong. <laughs> sure. It's just for uh, the coldest states in the country and anyone who's had the pleasure of working outside in North Dakota or northern Minnesota in January can appreciate it. It's for performance. It's so the, the vehicle will still start. So uh, it's just a fuel properties thing. So it's just to enable every state uh, and region to have what they need to allow for flexibility in the fuel formula so that the vehicles will start and perform as expected. Thanks, Christy. I had it just backwards. I knew there was a good reason, but I just couldn't remember it off the top of my head. And this happens in, in formulas. This isn't limited to E85. This happens in, in formulas for, for diesel and other fuels that struggle at the colder temperatures. That makes sense. All right, let's switch a little bit over and talk about feedstock pricing and markets and things like that um, and how they can affect um, the production and pricing for fuel, these different uh, fuels. Uh, Scott, let's talk with, start with you. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impact of corn prices on ethanol production? Sure. Uh, ethanol, uh, corn is the number one production cost for making ethanol. In the model that I follow, I believe it's about 80% of the cost typically of making ethanol. So whatever happens to the price of corn is one way or another going to have a big impact on the price of ethanol. And you know sometimes the price of ethanol uh, feeds back and affects the price of corn, but more often than not, because it's such a huge part of the input cost structure of making ethanol, the movements in corn prices will lead the movements in ethanol pricing. And we've certainly seen that in the last year with corn prices uh, approaching record highs, uh, that that has pushed up the price of, of ethanol. So definitely very important and tight relationship between 
corn and ethanol prices on one hand, and we might want to get into this a little bit more later, but uh, we see something similar with regard to soybean oil and other vegetable oils that are feedstocks into making fain biodiesel and renewable diesel. All right, and Christy, um, what is the current market for biodiesel? Um, maybe talk a little bit about the current production and, and consumption and, and just give uh, everybody a little bit of uh, an overview of the biodiesel market right now, if you wouldn't mind. Yes, the biodiesel market, the production and consumption tends to be pretty well matched in, in the U.S. What we're producing domestically, we're consuming domestically. There's not a lot of imports or exports. And in 2021, that was about 1.6 billion gallons for both production and consumption. Uh, there's 75 plants uh, spread out across 33 states. That's a little bit more geographical diversity when compared with, with ethanol, just because there's different feedstocks uh, used, just a greater variety in that market. And certainly biodiesel is very driven by uh, the, the renewable fuel standard and the low carbon fuel standard in California. And it's usually used in lower level blends, uh, like 5%, up to 5% biodiesel, a consumer gas station might not even know that it's going into their, their gas station or, or into their vehicle because it has no negative impact. So quite a long time ago, it was incorporated into the ASTM standard for petroleum diesel. So it's treated the same and can be used in all existing infrastructure and engines. And then another common blend is B20, which is 6% to 20% biodiesel. It may require some minimal infrastructure upgrades and it can be used in, in most existing engines. Uh, blends above that are a little less common. It's for specific fleets or, or sometimes um, in mining. And uh, there's also uh, another fuel renewable diesel, which is not the same as biodiesel, that's really been coming on strong in the marketplace in the past few years. And it's chemically identical to petroleum diesel, and it meets that same petroleum diesel uh, ASTM spe specification, so it can be used in all existing infrastructure and engines. And last year, Maybe there was about a, a billion gallons of, of consumption in the U.S. from both domestic production and imports, but that is expected to grow quite a bit this year because a lot of oil refinery companies are converting existing refineries to produce renewable diesel. So I think we'll see it expand outside of the California marketplace, and it could even overtake biodiesel in terms of production numbers and, and consumption numbers within the U.S. So if I have this right, you can take either B5 or the renewable diesel and essentially just like swap it out for when you would use traditional diesel for any engine or vehicle or, um, or industrial use like that. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And, and how is renewable diesel created or made? What, what is it made from? There's several different technology pathways and there's the main one with hydro treating, but yeah, with the feedstock, Scott, if you can give uh, input on that, I, I'm not quite up to date on what's sure. being used right now. Um, basically the same 
feedstocks from a technical standpoint that are used to make uh, traditional biodiesel, what I call fame biodiesel, uh, through that technology process can be used to make renewable diesel. Uh, we don't have great data on it. actually what's being used right now, but uh, probably to date, um, things like used cooking oil, waste uh, grease, animal fats, uh, those are the most preferred feedstocks for renewable diesel because those get uh, very high, or basically, excuse me, low carbon intensity scores out in the California low carbon fuel standard. So that's what these new refineries prefer. But there's an awful lot of soybean oil also being used to make renewable diesel. So the uh, really important message is that uh, basically the same pool of feedstocks is used to make fame biodiesel and renewable diesel. Yeah, and I believe hydro treating is the most common technology used today to produce it, but there's certainly a lot of other technology pathways that are viable or being researched for future production and certainly different feedstocks. For example, if you're using municipal solid waste, you'd be looking at a, a different technology production pathway to get a feel like renewable diesel. Yeah, it's my understanding, Christy, that the vast majority of the refinery conversions that are going on is some version of the hydro treating technology. In fact, one company is doing virtually all of the uh, conversions that are going on. And uh, it is important for listeners to understand that uh, the production processes for what I call traditional fame biodiesel and renewable, renewable diesel are drastically different and do result in chemically different fuels. Fame biodiesel is basically a, a chemical conversion process, uh, whereas the renewable diesel is literally put through uh, a same kind of cooking and cracking process that is used when you're making petroleum products out of uh, crude oil. Instead of crude oil going into the refining cracking towers, they put in vegetable oil or animal fats. Um, they use a lot of, of heat and pressure and uh, chemical catalysts, and they crack the, the fats and oils and then provide other processes, and out comes renewable diesel. And renewable diesel is a 100% drop-in fuel, chemically indistinguishable from petroleum diesel, so that basically you don't have to blend it. You can use 100% renewable diesel, whereas fame biodiesel, as Christy explained, generally is used in uh, blends like uh, two or five percent, maybe some up to 15 or 20 percent, but most common is probably about five percent. Um, that's because Fame biodiesel is chemically not exactly the same as petroleum diesel. Scott, would you be able to talk a little bit about, um, like, is there any competition um, between biodiesel and renewable diesel for the same feedstocks? Absolutely. This is one of the biggest economic stories in the entire biofuel sector right now is uh, the feedstock battle between 
FAME biodiesel and renewable diesel. And the evidence certainly says that renewable diesel is winning. Uh, and at some point in 2022, renewable diesel production in the US is going to surpass uh, domestic uh, FAME biodiesel um, production. And FAME biodiesel producers have been put under extreme uh, margin stress because renewable diesel producers have, at least to date, been able to drive the price of feedstocks up to a level which makes it difficult for the FAME biodiesel producers to profit. All right. Um, so, Scott, I've got a little bit of an offbeat question for you. Um, I noticed uh, in doing my research for this interview that uh, you have an interest in auto racing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the use of these um, uh, feedstock fuels and alternative fuels in auto racing and, and what that brings to uh, the table there. Well, that's a great question. Uh, I am an auto racing enthusiast. Uh, and uh, as I understand it, I'm no technical expert on racing fuels, but uh, ethanol is a uh, can be used in many high-performance racing engines. Um, traditionally, a fuel that would be used was called methanol, and ethanol is very close chemically, so that it makes a very good high-performance uh, racing fuel. Um, I don't know um, any other biofuels that are used in racing engines other than uh, ethanol. Uh, I think there's some effort to get ethanol into Formula One engines, which is the leading uh, racing series in the world. I'm not exactly sure of the status of that, um, but uh, I know that there's a lot of different series here in the U.S. that uh, do use ethanol. All right. And as we close out our session today, um, is there anything else that either of you would like to add in or talk about that we didn't get to yet? I guess, Scott, I would ask you to comment, too, just on the, the soybean market and how that's impacted, because while we're not 100% sure on, on the mix of feedstocks, what percentages are used for renewable diesel. We know that for biodiesel, for the famed biodiesel, the, the majority of the feedstock still is soybean oil. Right. Um, it's really been something remarkable to watch, Christy. The best way I can um, describe the monumental impact the renewable diesel boom has had in the soybean complex is that traditionally the value of a bushel of soybeans uh, came from, uh, was about two thirds from the high protein soybean meal that would result from crushing the soybeans and about a third from the oil that content that uh, comes out of the crushing process. So basically two thirds, one third. And those proportions have been fixed for literally eons. Uh, there's a little variation over time and year, depending on you know, whether meal or oil is a little more valued, but there's not a lot of variation. And then starting in early 2021, the world just got turned upside down. 
And right now we're looking at soybean oil prices as high as almost a dollar per pound uh, uh, because of this feedstock competition from renewable diesel producers has resulted in about 50% of the value of a bushel of soybeans coming from soybean oil and 50% from soybean meal. You know, maybe that doesn't sound like a lot, but from a historical standpoint, you know, that's a sea tide change in the valuation of soybeans. And it has really upended pricing in the entire sector globally. Thank you, that was really interesting. Scott, do you have anything additional you'd like to add that we didn't get to? No, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Uh, I guess we didn't talk a lot about policy and I just think our listeners probably, uh, it, it's just important you know, that much of the trajectory of biofuels production and, and uh, usage is really driven by policy and it's a complex mix of policies. So I think that's just important to understand if you're trying to understand the biofuels industries is that it's deeply uh, enmeshed and entangled with both federal and state policies. Yes, that's a good point. Uh, Christy, anything else from you before we close out? I do not have anything else. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you both Scott and Christy for your time today to talk about ethanol and biodiesel with our listeners. Um, I thought this was super interesting and um, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, really glad to participate. This was a lot of fun and thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Sarah. And thanks to Christy and Scott for joining us. That's it for this episode of On The Go. Stay tuned for future episodes on electric school bus resources and technical assistance for transportation. As we wrap up, I want to thank the U.S. Department of Energy's Vehicle Technologies Office and our team here at the National Renewable Energy Lab for their support. Also, a big thanks to Brittany Conrad and Vern Slocum, our podcast editors. We couldn't do it without you. If you want to learn more about Clean Cities and its partnerships to develop affordable, efficient, and clean transportation options to accelerate the development and widespread use of a variety of innovative transportation technologies, visit us at cleancities.energy.gov 